0: Everybody doing good? Excellent. It's good to be back with you. I was at a church planting conference last week in Orlando. Had a great time there, but always good to be back home. So the website Fast Company posed a question that I'd like to start with today. The question was this, what is the greatest logo of all time? Now, did you realize that the average person gets bombarded with upwards of 5,000 brand messages every day? And every brand wants a message that's not only simple and memorable, but but also taps into a deep level of desire. So I'm going to show you some of the best, and we're going to see how effective they truly are. Okay, I did something similar a few years back, so some of you guys may have a head start, but if you know it, I'm going to let you just go ahead and shout it out loud. Okay, a little audience participation here. And this first one is for Nike, Nike. right? Anybody know what it's called? The The swoosh, that's right. Nike was the Greek goddess of victory. This is supposed to look like one of her wings. And it was actually developed by a graphic design student, Carolyn Davidson. She got paid literally $2 an hour for working for Nike. Uh, Overall, she got $35 to create the swoosh. Uh, Phil Knight said of it, I don't love it, but it'll grow on me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Grew on a lot of people. All right. This next one is for Yeah, you guys can read. That's good. I know it's tricky. (laughs) I got something better for you. Okay, oftentimes, logos, they have hidden messages in them. And if you look very carefully at the yellow line and where it starts and ends, it stands for the fact that at Amazon, you can buy everything from A to Z. Plus, it's in the shape of a smile to stand for how happy the people are who buy from Amazon. And I think how happy the people are who own Amazon, probably. All right, then there is... FedEx. FedEx says when it's got to get there fast. Have you noticed that there's a white arrow between the E and the X? The hidden message there. Yeah, see the arrow, it stands for speed, movement, accuracy. Then there's Baskin Robbins. Okay, I'll go ahead and say it since it's right up there. Okay. And now I may be the only one who never noticed this before, but they have 31 wonderful flavors. And the 31 is actually incorporated into the logo here. You see it there? Just to remind you, Okay, now this next one's going to be kind of tough because it doesn't have a name attached to it. Wow, you know this. Yeah, what would happen if Starbucks were to close? No coffee was available. The country would collapse, wouldn't it? Yeah, we'd save a lot of money. Yeah, five bucks. Okay, then this next one, there's uh, Google, okay? The logo for Google is the word Google. (laughs) I have no idea how this one even made the list, so we'll move on. Okay, next there is... Yeah, the golden arches. You know, Business Insider says this is the most recognizable logo in the world. Stands for satisfaction. You get food, you get it fast, you get it cheap, right? Uh, you, know, it's, it's, you know, it tastes good. If you have a van, your kids can put together a whole meal just by rummaging it through the cracks in the seats and get all the French fries you got the last time you were there. Yeah, that's McDonald's. You know, really smart people, they stay up late at night dreaming up these things. And a good logo, it's not just memorable, it's also compelling. It makes you say, I have to have that. I have to be a part of that. So what's the greatest logo of all time? Well, that brings us to a really crucial observation. For 2,000 years now, the primary image that has been associated with Jesus and his movement of people, oddly enough, has been two pieces of wood. They were fastened together to execute slaves and criminals. For people who follow Jesus, this is the corporate logo. This is our brand. And if you reflect on this, it's really, really strange. I mean, other religions have symbols that are much more inviting. As you may know, the star of David, maybe a you know, crescent moon, lotus flower, images of light, beauty, nature. If you were designing a logo to attract men and women from all around the world to become a part of your movement, no marketing expert would recommend a means of execution. But it's become so familiar to us through jewelry and art, we've been desensitized to it. We miss its shocking meaning. I mean, how likely is it that Georgetown Utilities would select as its logo an electric chair, right? (laughs) With a slogan, the power's on. (laughs) Wouldn't be too much different, would it? How likely is it that jewelry makers would make necklaces with little guillotines on them or something? That would actually be pretty popular with the goth crowd probably. But but how odd is it that more graves are marked by crosses than by anything else? I mean, it's unthinkable that they'd be marked by some other means of death, like gallows or knives or guns, unimaginable. And yet we don't even think twice about the cross. Well, you should know this did not happen by accident. Jesus was the master of images as with everything else. And he purposely selected this one, the cross. And it became, as he knew it would, the most famous, the most powerful image in history. The obvious question is, why? Why a cross? Well, that's what we're gonna look at today. See, we've begun as a church to study passages from this remarkable book in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. And Corinth was a culture very much like ours today, especially the greater Austin area. We talked about this back in week one. It was rebuilt by Rome, so it had a startup culture. It was generating enormous wealth. It was culturally, ethnically, spiritually very diverse. It was extremely competitive. The people who lived in Corinth were obsessed with status. Remember, they were killing it. You know, if you think the logo of a cross would be strange to us, it would be exponentially stranger to them. And this is what is totally unique about the Christian faith. An author, Fleming Rutledge, writes, the world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. See, it was Jesus who conceived of such a thing. It was Jesus who used the cross to express the brokenness of humanity, the measureless love of God, and a paradoxical pathway to victory in the good life that Amazon and Nike and Starbucks and McDonald's only give us tiny little tastes of. Now, Paul was totally captivated by the cross of Jesus. In fact, the image and message of the cross runs all throughout his letter to the Corinthians. And people, the cross is about much more than just how to get a ticket into heaven. For Paul, it summarizes everything that Jesus taught, that those who are servants are actually the greatest that the first will be last, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's like everything that Jesus ever did or taught somehow got fully expressed and fully embodied on the cross. I mean, the cross that embodied evil and guilt and death, Jesus turned it around to embody goodness, love, and life. Jesus turned the cross from an instrument intended to kill God to an instrument that God would use through Jesus to kill death by himself dying. And so we're gonna look in depth in the study in Corinthians at the cross and we're gonna seek to be a people of the cross. Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. By the way, the word translated message here the Greek word logos. What word do we get from that in English? (laughs) Logo. The logo of the cross, the message of the cross is the power of God. That would sound utterly bizarre to Corinthians. Corinth prided itself on its intellectual and cultural life. It was a colony of Rome. It surpassed Athens as the intellectual leader of the area. It had found favor with Caesar. It had Greek wisdom and culture. It had Roman wealth, Roman power it had sexual freedom, financial opportunity. It was the place you would go when you wanted to get ahead. Crucifixion would not have struck the people of Corinth as a good career move, a good career booster. You know, in the ancient world, they knew all about execution. They practiced it quite often. They knew how to execute people swiftly with a stroke of a sword to behead them. They knew how to execute people privately. Socrates condemned to die, and he took Hemlock with a small circle of friends. But crucifixion, let me tell you, was much more of a hassle for the government. took four soldiers to do it. Had to have four soldiers there. There had to be a centurion present in order for it to happen. The cross itself had to be constructed. I mean, crucifixion was time-consuming, very costly, and governments are always looking for ways to keep expenses down. So why did they do it? Why crucifixion? Well, for two reasons. First of all, crucifixion maximized the pain inflicted on the person being crucified. It took hours, sometimes days, for the person to die. Second, crucifixion maximized the public humiliation of the person being crucified. It was a public spectacle. Do you realize the victims would be stripped naked? This happened to Jesus. And all of that was an essential part of crucifixion, to have no power over your body, to be exposed, to be shamed, to be mocked. And then, as you may know, there would be a procession to the place of crucifixion, right? And it was kind of like a parade. They would actually have an individual who would shout out to the crowd over and over again the nature of the crime committed. They would have a board on which that crime was written. They would go and take the longest routes through the most crowded streets to maximize public attention. A Roman writer, Seneca, he lived around Paul's day, said that any self-respecting man would commit suicide, before allowing himself to be crucified. You know, Rome used crucifixion primarily for slaves. It was actually called the slave's punishment, or they would use it for rebels who conspired against the government. Rome was trying to control these foreign countries like Israel who hated them. And this was kind of their way of discouraging rebellion. So if you sought to become the Messiah, your number one rule would be don't get crucified. Don't get crucified crucified. Conventional wisdom, the kind they admired in Corinth would say, that's a good rule for leaders in general. Ron Heifetz from Harvard, he actually has a great definition of leadership. I love this. If you've ever been in a leadership position, you'll get this. He says, exercising leadership might be understood as disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. That's good. I feel that. Exercising leadership might be understood as disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. Well, Jesus disappointed people at a rate they could not absorb. They crucified him. But it's so fascinating to me that Paul does not minimize Jesus's public failure. In fact, what does he do? He highlights it. Listen to this. Paul wrote, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now you might think about this as three alternative brands, three messages, three logos, if you will. You might even think about which one you would choose for yourself because we live in a day where everybody has to have their own brand. Paul says the people of Israel, the Jews, they demanded signs. Oh, we see this all the time in the gospels, right? The Pharisees and the teachers of law, they come to Jesus and says, Jesus, teacher, 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 show us a sign. And the idea is they're looking for works of great power, miracles that would indicate that this leader has the power, the strength, and the charisma to overthrow Rome. And if we were to attach a logo to this brand, it might be a picture of The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Right, former wrestler, football player turned wealthy movie star who's so strong, he is called The Rock. Right, you want a messiah, you want The Rock, you know, rumor has it we have a pastor on staff who lifts weights. He's been called the pump pastor. He looks like the pebble compared to the rock, okay? I've seen him. This, 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 this logo would say, you know, the way to the good life, it's through more power, more charisma, the ability to dominate, demanding signs of great power. I get that, I want that. Paul says, that's not Jesus's brand. With the second brand, Paul says, the, the Gentiles or, or the Greeks, they look for what? Wisdom. Now, if we were to attach a logo to this one, it might be a picture of Albert Einstein, right? Brilliant, brilliant guy. But you need to put the word wisdom in quotes here. Because in Corinth, the kind of wisdom they were pursuing, it was more about honor, wealth, glory, self-promotion, self-status. You see, in that day, they were all about mastering the art of rhetoric. We're gonna talk more about this next week. It was very self-serving the sages were kind of the celebrities of their day, sort of like reality TV stars are in our day. And when Paul says, I I didn't preach with wisdom or eloquence, don't misunderstand this. Paul's not saying that he uses poor logic or bad grammar, very much to the contrary. It means he identifies with people of low status. He lived amongst the Corinthians as a servant. He defied conventional wisdom of making your life all about getting ahead. See, to try to secure uh, so the good life, by, by going after power, demanding signs that guarantee power, influence, control, domination. I get that brand. Or to try to secure the good life by being the smartest person in the room, figuring out how to get ahead of everybody else. I get that brand. That's not Jesus's brand. Neither one of those are Jesus's brand. Jesus's brand is this. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Boy, we need to talk about how strange that phrase is. You know, an oxymoron is actually two words that contradict each other, right? You, you know some, like jumbo shrimp, hell's angels, a small crowd, a civil war, airline food. Huh? <laughs> I just flew back. I, I, trust me. Rap music. Now nah, I'm just kidding. All you rap music fans. So. What's the oxymoron in this passage? Christ crucified? Christ crucified? We're likely to skim just right past that. Christ, first of all, Christ was not a name. It was a title. Jesus was his name. Christ was a title that meant the anointed one, the Messiah. Crucifixion, by definition, meant you're not the Messiah. Rome defeated you. I mean, you could have a Messiah. You could have a crucifixion. You couldn't have both. Now, Paul's kind of rubbing the Corinthians' noses in it. It would be one thing to say, we preach Christ, anointed leader, wise teacher, noble character, I get that. But no, Paul doesn't say we preach Christ. He says we preach Christ crucified, failed, crushed, shamed, humiliated, executed. Just a few verses later, he gets after this same thing. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Crucified. Do you understand how utterly upside down and disorienting this would be to the people at Corinth? I mean, the cross meant that Jesus had been tried and found wanting. He couldn't give enough signs of his power to rally his own people to overcome their oppressors. He couldn't plead his case with enough wisdom or eloquence to persuade Roman justice. He tried, he lost, he failed, he died. In a world where honor was proof of merit, in a world where failure was proof of worthlessness, Jesus experienced the deepest, most public, most dehumanizing shame known in the ancient world. And this is what Paul leads with, which can only mean one of two things. Either Jesus was not so great or greatness is gonna have to be redefined. Maybe the good life, maybe the purpose of life is going to have to be redefined. Corinth's going to have to be redefined. Georgetown, the greater Austin area is going to have to be redefined. Either Jesus was not as great as they thought or the purpose of life and the nature of God and who counts and who doesn't and the power of suffering love to overcome hatred and, and the possibility of having our sins forgiven by God have been so radically turned upside down by this crucified carpenter, for crying out loud, that Rome And Caesar and Corinth itself are little bit players by comparison. What Paul is saying here against all odds is that, you know what? In a thousand years when this Roman empire has crumbled, this man Jesus and his church will still be growing, which by the way is exactly what happened. That is the power of the cross. The power of the cross turns out to be the power of God. We preach Christ and him crucified. And then here's the good news. It becomes what? The power of the resurrection. We all love that part. But you can't have a resurrection without a crucifixion first. You can't skip the crucifixion part. Jesus couldn't. And gang, here's where this gets really, really personal. If we want to get serious about following Jesus, doing life the way he did, then we can't skip the crucifixion part either. I know that often people think, well, Jesus died on a cross, so I don't have to not Paul. Not Paul. You want to see what Paul said? He said, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is Jesus's prescription for the good life that people are so passionate to find out about, but it's not the way of Corinth. It's not the way of our culture, more money, more status, more power. It is the way of the cross and it requires surrender. Now, let me make something absolutely clear here. This is not about the free gift of salvation. I come to Christ by faith alone. I trust that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I receive his salvation, forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life forever in heaven. That's a no-cost deal. But discipleship, Mm. no, discipleship means I come to the cross and I lay down my life. you've never done that before, I want to invite you to do it, either today or maybe at some point in this series. There's the free gift of salvation by faith alone, and then there's the costly, costly commitment of being a disciple. Two different things. At the cross, I give to God my life, my money, my power, my ego, my habits. I give Him my old self, my old life, and then I receive from Him whatever He determines to give to me. This is the way, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now, here's something really fascinating. Jesus chose the way of the cross. In fact, he named the cross as his logo long before he ever died on one. Isn't that interesting? And he tells anyone who really wants to follow in his footsteps to be his disciple, you got to live under the cross remembering there's great power in the cross, but it also involves great humility. It involves dying to yourself. So as we close here, I want to talk about what it means to live under the cross. First of all, it means you got to try to do every moment of every day with God, continually asking Jesus to partner with you. Guide me, give me wisdom, give me strength. And then you look for ways to put others ahead of yourself. Look around to see who you can encourage. When you're in a meeting this week, pray that God would let some other person say something really smart. Pull for your biggest rival to shine the brightest in that room. Yeah, I know that hurts. I get that. I feel that, but it's good. If you're at school, take your tests under the cross. it will change the way you take tests. All right? no cheating, no comparing with anybody else, no worrying. Just do your best, offer it to God, and let it go nail that test to the cross. When you get in your car, drive under the cross. Try doing that. Yeah. When that slowpoke is in the fast lane, when that maniac flies past you, because after all, you're driving the perfect speed, right? It'll change the way you drive if you drive under the cross. This week, when, when you pick up your phone, when you turn on your computer, go online under the cross. Am I looking at sites Jesus would be looking at? Am I looking at sites he wouldn't be? Am I, am I posting and tweeting the way Jesus would tweet if he were me? In your home, live under the cross. Ask God to help you be a servant to your spouse, to your roommate, to your siblings, to your children. Let the cross remind you that God has not put you in control over them. Even though you know their life would go so much better if they'd just let you run it, right? It's all right, let it go. Live under the cross this week. Listen, care, serve speak truth, encourage, give. Take the cross with you into your Corinth. Because I'll tell you a little secret. There is a wisdom you cannot Google. There is a treasure you cannot get on Amazon. There's a hunger you cannot satisfy at the golden arches. FedEx might save you some time, not eternity. Through the cross of Jesus, which is the power of God, the riches of God, the wisdom of God, the abundant good life, it can be yours. Yeah, I heard about a guy who, whenever trials and troubles would come, he would always say to those around him, here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to double down on the cross. We're going to bet everything on this crucified carpenter who's the hope of this world. Because I'll tell you this, no matter how well you end up doing in Corinth, the day's going to come when Corinth will let you down. Corinth will not save you. Corinth has no power over death. The cross does. Some people look for signs, right? Power and domination. Not us. Some people, they they look for wisdom, being the smartest guy in the room. Not us. We're going to follow the crucified Christ who was killing it. We're going to double down on the cross. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, I just got to tell you up front, I love, love, love your word. It is so powerful, so convicting. And this message today from Corinthians, it may be the craziest paradox ever. That the cross, Christ crucified, is the power of God. That our logo, our brand, is the cross. So in a world where people strive after power, we're in a world where people are looking for their own wisdom, their own glory, help us to say no to that. Help us instead to come as Paul did with, with nothing but Christ and Christ crucified because the power of the cross, it becomes the power of the resurrection. Lord, would you teach us that the only way, the only way that we're going to have true power, the only way we're going to have true wisdom is by dying to our own. We got to die to ourselves so that your Holy Spirit can live through us. And God, I don't know what that looks like for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, but, but this week, I pray that we would learn what it means to live under the cross, to deny ourselves, to say no to that old way of living. And yes to you, to invite you into every moment, to invite your spirit to work through us. Because as you said, Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing, nothing of real value. So God, my prayer would be that we could all say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In his name we pray.